3: Welcome back to another episode of The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. All right, let me tell you, this is one of my favorite episodes to date. Dan Patrick, radio host, NBC Olympics host, long time one of the faces at ESPN during the NBA Finals. He joins the show, and he has stories from Wilt Chamberlain to Michael Jordan you absolutely have to hear. All right, let's go.
0: Yahoo Sports presents The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. Powered by digital media. Find your voice, and now, your host, Chris Mannix.
3: Well, I usually begin these podcasts apologizing to my guest after the fact for having to be part of such a terrible podcast, but I'm going to begin this one apologizing (laughs) to Dan Patrick for being late. Dan, I'm usually, as you kind of know, I'm usually prompt, available, you know, whenever I... I need to be, but in making the trek, and we're in Rio, by the way, for listeners out there, in making the trek from my hotel to where we are now at your hotel, I got very lost. And you know a lot about me, but one thing you don't know is that I don't do lost very well. When I get out of a cab or a train and I'm lost, panic sets in, and that panic is multiplied tenfold when you're in a country like Brazil that has been going through what it's been going through. So, Dan Patrick, I appreciate you waiting it out for me.
4: Yeah, but you're a guy, so you probably don't ask for directions either. You're going to try to figure it out on your own. Well, no,
3: that's not true.
4: I am very, I'll be careful what I say here, but I, I'm very the
3: opposite of that. So, I asked for directions three or four times. Oh, okay. And then when I got the directions, I didn't believe them because I got on a bus and I didn't think it was the right bus, so I jumped off. Finally, got into a cab, and the guy didn't speak English, so I broke out the Waze app and just <laughs> aimed him in the right direction. So I made it a little bit late, but I apologize uh, ahead of time. Okay. Let me give you. you let me give you the formal introduction. Dan okay. Patrick is the host of the Dan Patrick Show, which you can listen on some 275 radio stations as well as watch on Direct TV, NBC Sports Network. He's the host of NBC's Football Night in America. He has a column every week in Sports Illustrated, and he hosts. Sports Jeopardy, which you can see on the NBC Sports Network as well. Dan, did I miss anything there?
4: I don't think so. No. I don't think so. I was Pierre Maguire, the uh, hockey analyst, is over. Can you stop with the chair? Pierre Maguire over there at the bar with his chair. Yeah, no, you were good, Chris. Thank you. How many Olympics? Now, this has started out great. Yeah, this has started way.
3: out great. We're we're good. We're good. We're going to try to get. Into Let's the do beat. two shows. Okay. Yeah. How many
4: Olympics is this for you? Five. So your first was. Calgary in 88. Okay.
3: So you skipped a few in between. Yes, I
4: did. Well, when you're not a rights holder, and when I worked at the mothership, you know, there was no reason to go to the Olympics. And then one of the reasons why I went to NBC was to work at the Olympics. I wanted to host an Olympics and uh, went to Vancouver, London, Sochi, and uh, now here in Rio. So it it was something on my bucket list.
3: So... No, you weren't part of the the original Dream Team year, 1992. No. That group. No.
4: Would have loved to have been a part of that, just now hearing the stories. A lot of them through Patrick Ewing. And to be able to get his sort of take on things and his friendships off of that, uh, I always found fascinating because we we don't see Patrick in that light. You You see personality, like Magic has personality, Bird has personality, Jordan has personality. Patrick Ewing has a ton of personality. And I, to this day, I've developed a friendship with him, which I never thought I would because I covered the Georgetown teams when I was at CNN. And I'd go to Washington DC when I was stationed in New York, never interviewed Ewing, would interview John Thompson, but didn't know Patrick. And now to be able to come full circle and be able to talk to him. And he's always been a great contributor to our show. It's fun. But that, that would have been a great team to be around, embrace, watch, enjoy.
3: Yeah, I think most people out there wouldn't get that Patrick has a personality like that. That he's more affable, as you seem to be saying, than yes. people think.
4: Yeah. It changed at the finals in San Antonio and I was with Mark Jackson and John Barry. And I remember Mark was going to dinner with Patrick. So St. John's and Georgetown were going to dinner. And I was with John Barry we're working the NBA finals and this is 1999 I think and so we go to the same steakhouse in San Antonio we don't even know it but we go to the same place so we show up and we show up the same time and Mark said you know Patrick probably is not going to want a member of the media and I said I get it no worries so I'm with John and John starts talking to Patrick and I introduce myself and so we talk a little bit and uh so then we get ready to sit down, and then Patrick said, you want to sit with us? So then I think, okay, that's my cue to sit, but not talk. So I'm just going to uh-huh. listen. So fast forward to, you know, I start asking questions, and next thing I know, Mark Jackson goes, uh, tell Patrick uh, who you would take between him and Akeem Olajuwon. And So Patrick looks at me, and I go, Akeem's a better center. And he goes, all right, I'll buy that. He couldn't have been more affable. He was funny. He told stories. I came out of that dinner. I, like I said to John Barry, I said, I, I never knew Patrick was like that. And he goes, well, he would never share that with you guys. But he's funny, engaging, like all those things. And you're going, and to this day, because of that dinner, my relationship, well, became a relationship where I had a friendship with him or a professional relationship with him. And I find him funny and he he had this and he tells these harrowing stories about what it was like growing up in Boston and what those people there did or fans did and what they said and you know the tough time yes. in Boston yeah and you go to Georgetown and John Thompson sort of cordoned him off because he needed to he want, he was protecting him and you know i'm in the media i want to talk to patrick he he was never available but i understood what john was doing at the time i didn't understand it but then i mean he grew up with this bullseye on him and was never able to be just a person he was sort of a thing he was patrick Ewing it was georgetown it was you know whatever john thompson was creating but he's one of my favorite people, and I never... And, and when I find out that Bird loved him, like Bird, that was his favorite guy, was Patrick Ewing. And I go, I get it now, because I could totally see Bird and him just sort of having conversation and giving each other grief. And I, I you know, I was fortunate to be able to experience a little you bit of that. You know
3: what I miss, and, and I guess I can't say I miss it because I never experienced it, but... The days when the walls between athletes and the media weren't quite so thick, I guess, and you know when you could go to a dinner with a Patrick Ewing, when guys like Bob Ryan and, and Jackie McMullen and others interacted with players yeah. more often. Nowadays, it just seems like the wall is so high, and and I think in some ways the fans pay the price for it because you never get to really know these guys that well. You never get to truly, or rarely do you get to truly tell their stories because they just don't, don't want to let you in. Can you even pinpoint a time when that really started to happen, when, when the, the world kind of evolved to the point where you, you just can't get at these guys in the same way?
4: Well, I was fortunate working at ESPN that I thought that there was access there, and for the most part there was access I think sometimes you would be able to use a relationship, and use is the wrong word, but be able to access a relationship to get to another relationship. So I couldn't get to Jordan necessarily unless I went through Barclay to get to Jordan. But I loved being around Charles. So they have to trust you. And I think that they almost want to test you to trust you. And I was fine with that. You know, there are a lot of things that you see. There's a lot of things that you're around but back then you don't have internet. You don't, I mean, you don't have camera phones. And if you did, then they would have reacted differently. So I think really kind of the influx of the, tell me so I can gossip about it, or I'm gonna find out about it. Almost outing these athletes to show what they really are because that's what people wanna know. And I never understood that. What came first? That you wanted to tell us about them Or that we ask you to find out about that. It's the chicken or the egg. I remember
3: Barkley used to have a rule. You know, you could hang out with him, but nothing ever made it out. If you came with him and you were a reporter and you were hanging out with him, he was okay with that, but everything was off the record there. Everything that happened, you couldn't touch it from then on out. But I never even thought of it.
4: it. It was one of those where you go, it was a professional courtesy if you're with him. And he would be open and engaging and... You know, he wasn't buying preferential treatment because if he didn't play well when Phoenix played Chicago and he had a bad game, then you could say something and he would respect you for that. But I I found that those who were professionals were asking you to be a professional if you want to come out. But then I started, it, it kind of backfired on me, though, Chris, when I was friends with Mark McGuire and Jason Giambi. And Giambi was having an unbelievable year and became an MVP. And Mark McGuire was challenging for the all-time record, you know, single-season record. So I was so, i was around it, and I'd met them through the ESPYS, and and I realized I got too close. Giambi invited me to his wedding. McGuire became a friend, and then it changed when I realized what was going on with both of them, and it was tough. But I put myself in that position, and I vowed I'd never put myself in that position again. So while you want access, you got to be careful with that access because it can put you in that really, really delicate spot. And it did to me with McGuire and Jambi. And Jambi and I didn't talk for 15 years. Um, he came back on the show he recently, did. right? Recently yeah. he did, and he was fine. McGuire, we eventually had sort of a— moment where he understood what I was doing. I still like him, respect him, but I got too close. And, and I realized that. that that's, it's nice to say, hey, yeah, we're friends, or let me call this guy, or, or I can text him. That's not my, I'm not doing my job mm-hmm. if I'm doing that.
3: I like the, the Giambi interview you had, because it seemed like you were having sort of a, a therapeutic session no, with him real. on the air. It was that would real. Be if they- I
4: called him privately, that's what it would have been. But then, given what I'm trying to do on the show, I want you to eavesdrop. I want you to feel like you're eavesdropping. But that was real eavesdropping. Like, that was where I said, are we cool? Are you okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. I hadn't talked to him for 15 years. That's when you go, if you're going to create this environment for a show, then that's when you have to say, here it is. I'm going to put it out there. You know, here's my laundry. Mm -hmm. It's flapping in the breeze. Mm -hmm.
3: You covered Jordan for many years, and you had the good seat for Jordan. Yes. You know, the the guy doing the interview when it was all over, when Michael was winning championships. What's your your favorite recollections of those days of, of being there, witnessing what he was doing, literally witnessing the greatest player of all time doing what he was doing in real time?
4: Instead of one of those where you go, I didn't realize what I was watching at the time, I realized what I was watching at the time. And I remember doing SportsCenter, Portland against the Bulls, NBA Finals, and Mark Jones was doing the post-game interviews. He was doing the SportsCenter interviews. And I'm watching that going, I'm doing that next year. So I realized what I was watching was history unfolding because I realized that Scotty and Michael and Phil, they weren't going away. And I wanted to be part of it. And I went into management and I said, next year I want to do the NBA finals. And I said, really? I said, yeah. And next year, you know, I'm involved in it. And to be able to sit down with him. Jordan always said, I can't be in here every game when we win. I'll always be in here when we win the championship. He was always true to his word. Every time they won a title, he came in. And when we're in Utah and he hits the jumper, and I'm wondering if – That's the way you go out. So I'm going to have that exit interview with Jordan. And I remember I was treating it differently because Phil came in and Michael was coming in. So we said to Phil, would you sit over there while we're going to have Michael come in? So Michael came in. He didn't have his shoes on because he always gave his shoes to Tim Halloran, their PR guy. Right. And he had his shirt out, soaked with champagne, had a Cuban cigar and when he came in and sat down, and I sort of looked at him as a past tense, like he was done. And so, at the very end of the interview, it was one of those throwaway lines when I went, "Shame you're retiring, man. Like a piece of you." And he turned, and he gave me this look, like I, I mean, I understand the look now with what his teammates got. But he goes, "What would you do?" what the fuck would you do? And I go, and I got a suit and tie on. Phil Jackson's right here. I'm, I'm in commercial break. And I'm going, stand up. So I stand up. He goes, hey, how would you fucking guard me? And I go, um, and I put my forearm in the middle of his back. And then he said, do you know how many fucking teams are trying to guard me like that? And I go, what am I doing? Holy shit. And then he left. And I looked over at Phil and he goes, you see what I have to deal with? <laughs> you know, like this. He, he, he got it. I went, oh, my God, what am I doing? And I, I poked the bear. I poked him. And that was it. Then, you know, poof, he was gone. Next it, thing we know. He, the,
3: I mean, all the athletes that you've interviewed in your career, and, and you can expand even beyond the NBA. I mean, has there ever been one that's been really intimidating? Like that moment you just described, I would have pissed my pants. Like if he st- stands up like that, because I have my own – old Michael Jordan story that I've told maybe even on your show before, which is when I was a ball boy with the Celtics when he's, this is like probably late 90s, I'm wearing a Duke t-shirt because everyone in the late 90s who was a 6'1 white guy wanted to be Bobby Hurley so (laughs) he sees me walking by, he says, Duke sucks, and I go, you know what? You suck. And he says, says, get over here and we start playing one-on-one for uh, a few minutes and, and he just destroyed me over the course of and I was probably too young to be all that impacted by it. But as a professional, if Jordan did something like that, I would have just been lost. Like I would have been like, stammering. I don't, know, I don't know how you, you can yeah, keep Yeah, but your- I didn't
4: – it happened right in the moment. So you just sort of react to it. And then I realized that it was gone because I had to then interview Phil Jackson right after that. You've just witnessed a guy winning the title, hitting the game-winning shot. That's the way you ride off in the sunset. But to have it where you had that stark contrast of, wait – he wants a piece of me. But as far as uh, intimidating interviews, I never viewed Jordan as intimidating because he wanted to play. Like he wanted you to have fun and like, like test him a little bit or put him in a little bit of an awkward situation. He was a competitor. And I, and I find with most athletes, they want to compete. So the interview is competitive is the way I look at it. You have something. I want it. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm going to get it and to approach them, and then they're competitive as well. So they want to make you work a little bit. And I like that. There's a serve and volley to it, but I like the competitive nature of, you know, you can go down the list of whoever it is. What can I get out of you that nobody got out of you? And that's the goal every time. Because if I interview you and I don't get something, then I didn't do my job. And I'm a competitive person, but for the most part, whether, you know, Bird or Magic or Phil or, I mean, go down the lit Michael felt it doesn't matter. They're still competitors, and that's the way you have to approach them.
3: The mid-90s Jordan retirement, the first retirement, what did you make of it? Were you a conspiracy theorist that, that David Stern said, you know, you're gambling, Michael, that's an issue? Or do you think he just, something burned out in him and he wants to try something different?
4: I don't think it's one of those where you go, boy, I've mastered this. Now let me try baseball. I think that it felt like he was put in a timeout. David Stern put him in a timeout. That's always been my feeling. And you go back to what was going on at the time. So you have to connect the dots a little bit here. And no one will ever, ever tell you. One day somebody will tell you, like if Michael went to play baseball as a tribute to his dad, or I mean, and maybe if it's as simple as that, he's just so competitive to be the greatest player of all time that I don't think he would pause, hit the pause button and go, I'm going to put being the greatest of all time on hold.
3: Especially after three championships. I'm going to go
4: play baseball. And I went to the Summer League, and Terry Francona was his manager. And I went with Barkley, and we went to Scottsdale. And I remember watching him, and I said to Terry, who I've known a long time, I said, he's trying to swing too pretty. Like, he wanted to look good swinging. You know, sometimes A-Rod's guilty of this, but he, he just didn't. Like, Jordan, it's a guy who's going to attack. He didn't attack his swing. And I said to Terry, I said, that looks like it's an issue. He goes, no, no, no. He's a great athlete, you know. And then I'm with Barkley. So I had asked Barkley for SportsCenter, would you interview Michael? You and Michael in the dugout. So it's not me. So we get there. Mike says he'll do it. We get there and we're watching. All of a sudden, Jordan goes, not going to do it. Gave no reason because Barkley was doing the interview. Right. But I watched him and I thought... You know, as graceful as he was, he was not the same guy. He was a killer. Like, he didn't attack. Like, there's certain guys, when you watch them swing the bat, it's violent. He didn't. And I wondered about that. Everything else, I thought, you know what? He can cover ground. He can run. Uh, he had fundamentals. But I always thought, and even his golf swing. If you watch his golf swing, he's very, he doesn't attack. He wants to look good with his swing. And that's what I, I wondered about with his swing. And it turned out, you know, to be correct that, I mean, he, he wasn't a great hitter, wasn't a good hitter. I'm still amazed that he put himself in that situation. Yeah. Even if you're suspended, now you've got to have a reason why, you know, because I'd gotten a, a heads-up from Sonny Vaquero who was instrumental in Mike coming to sure. Nike. And he said, um, you won't believe this, but Michael is taking batting practice uh, in a cage with the White Sox. So I don't even know what that means. So he was doing it sort of a clandestine way. And I'm going, oh, that's cute. Like it's one of those where, hey, uh, Phil Mickelson's throwing out the first pitch of the Toledo Mudhens. And then I go, wait, Jordan is taking BP. And then Sonny said he's serious about this. I'm going, how could he be serious about this? And then we found out he was very serious. It's still amazing to me
3: that regardless of what his batting average was, that a guy at his age can play as he was competitive for he wasn't a great minor league player, but he was competitive no. enough to just be able to to seamlessly transition into something else like that yes. and be able to yes. to do it. it. it was But I thought Sports remarkable. Illustrated was
4: unfair to him, yeah. you know, with he what stopped they stopped talking said. to us forever. Yes. I say us
3: but them now at this point for but,
4: me. But. but I understand it because he whether you buy into why he did it, he still tried it. So, you know, he, he could be embarrassed. Baseball is a hard sport. So even if you're batting, you know, 264, you can still be embarrassed and humbled. And I'm, I remember doing those highlights every single night when, you know, we'd have the Birmingham Barons. And I didn't want to, you know, bash him because I, I understood I played baseball. I, under, I get it. Like, It's tough. But we all expected, oh, it's the oh, greatest athlete in the world. Yeah, can't hit a curveball. And then I got it. Like, you got to be fair to him. But whether that was his true motive to, for doing it, I don't know if we'll ever know.
3: So uh, Dayton, Ohio, Cincinnati Royals? Yes. Back in the day?
4: Yes. Diehard. Got to see Oscar his last year before he went to the Bucks.
3: How great. Was Oscar Robertson. And, and I'm legitimately asking because I've seen the highlights and, and you hear the stat, oh, triple-double, all that. But to me, he still comes across sometimes. And this is more recently, this curmudgeonly guy that is angry at the Golden State Warriors. That, that's, the, <laughs> that's just kind of what he's come across at lately.
4: At the time, I'm young. I don't even know if I'm a teenager yet. But I remember... Seeing video of Oscar at Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Bearcats being so athletic. In the pros, he was a six-five guy who would back you down and have this show. Like I never looked at it and go, "Oh my god!" Like I never had an "Oh my god" moment with Oscar, even though he's one of the great players of all time. I'm surprised he's ranked as high as he is because he's only got one title. If he doesn't average a triple double, nobody's talking. He's about not. Him. He's not in that conversation. Right. But he was so smooth with things. Now if you said, you know, Jerry West or Clyde Frazier, like Clyde Frazier to me was far more dynamic to watch. So when I saw every team come in, when, o- when Oscar was traded for Charlie Polk and Flynn Robinson, it was one of those where you wake up in the morning and you go, wait, we traded Oscar, who did we get? We got Charlie Polk who was a Marine and we got Flynn Robinson. The Electric Eye was his nickname. And I went, wait, are these guys good? And I realized that they weren't good. And I had Tom Van Arsdale and Jumpin' Johnny Green. And I had Connie Durking and Jim Fox. And, like, I'm watching. But what was great about the Cincinnati Royals is every team had to come in. So I got Jerry West and the Lakers with Wilt. I got Pete Maravich. I got the Bullets with Earl Monroe. So I got everybody. I got the Knicks. I mean, I, it was awesome. Like, the, the Royals were terrible. And I got Nate Archibald. Nate Archibald was far more fascinating to watch than Oscar Robertson. Why? Oh, my God, was he dynamic. He was electric. Oh, he was, yeah. He was, you think Ginobili goes left every time. Nate went left every time. He led the league in scoring and assists yep. in the same year for a last-place team. Go figure. And he was so much fun. I remember at the when games would end, we'd, we'd get there three hours in advance. They'd have these stickers that they would put on the floor. So the logo of the team they were playing. And then you go up to the guy who ran the building and you say, you know, can I get one? There were two of them. So I had a Laker logo that was huge. I mean, it was six feet by six feet. And I I lived in a the size of a prison cell with my, my other brother Dave at home who was 6'6", so you can imagine we had no wall space, but I got the bullets when they had the little fingertips on the L's for the bullets, and there there was a jump ball. I got the Hawks, that was this green circle, and I got the Lakers as well, and I, we would get there so early, we'd sneak in and then we rebound for whoever was there, Mike Reardon was there I was rebounding for Mike Reardon and, it was, and then he would say, take a couple of shots. I'm going, all right, this is cool. Uh, Howard Porter, when Howard Porter left Villanova and he went to the Bulls, and you're able to see all of these guys. And Nate Archibald, after the game came out, and I go, damn, I'm, I'm taller than he is. Like, you know, when you're watching, you're going, wait, is that how tall is that guy? And then he always, like, at one. Nate was probably 5'10", which made it more impressive. But when Maravich came to town and I was a huge Maravich fan. Maravich, and I got there, and we were watch the layup line, and I'm right underneath the basket, and I'm watching Maravich the whole time. And they had a guy named Herbie White, 6'1", white guy out of Georgia, who could jump out of the gym. He's dunking, putting on a display. Crowd's going crazy. Maravich, who never dunked in a game. I mean, you can't find video. I don't think of him ever dunking. (laughs) He all of a sudden realizes Herbie White's getting all the attention. Pete's throwing it off the glass on one side, catching it, dunking it on the other, like putting on a dunking display. Like going, you know, because Maravich was, a, you know, just a shooter. In that game, he and Nate went up and down. One had like 40, and one had 38. It was so much fun. We wait till the end of the game because I got to get Maravich's autograph. So we're waiting outside. Walt Bellamy has this Cadillac Eldorado coming to pick <laughs> him up. Maravich comes out, and there's probably 75 people, maybe a little more, and they're screaming when Maravich came out. So my friend Zeke Campbell inexplicably grabs Maravich's hair. And Pete had that great you know, head of hair. So Zeke's got Maravich's hair in his hand. I got Maravich to sign Pistol, on my program, couldn't even make it out. Like, later, I realized he'd signed Pistol. He jumps in this white Cadillac Eldorado, and then they leave. And then we sort of, like, hit the reset button, and we're like, what just happened? Zeke goes, I got his hair in my hand. And I go, I I think he signed something. And it was one of those moments where you're, like, 12 years old or 13, and you're going, I'll never, ever forget that. But that was the first time I got to see, you know, greatness in person and realize just, like and then I was drawn to it, and then they, they of course, left and went yeah, to Kansas City. To <laughs> they, they, they abandoned me and went to Kansas, Kansas City, Omaha Kings. Bill Robenzine.
3: Unreal. What, what do you make then of the having seen the best of that era and, and seen what they could do when they came to town? Of all these, it's a constant debate in today's basketball circles about what this team would do then and what that team would do then. Let me just my my opinion on all on all sports is that. The teams of this generation would consistently clobber the teams of previous generations if for no other reason than athleticism has improved. Yeah. Just evolution. Yes. Evolution. Bob Cousy was one of the great Celtics of all time. He dribbled with one hand. Yeah. He just wouldn't survive in today's game. I just but
4: how would, they, how would they adapt to today's game if given the opportunity? So if you said to Walt Frazier, Jerry – like Jerry West was spectacular. Maravich today. If you can't put your hand on somebody, in Maravich – had great handle, he had range. So uh, you look at Steph Curry, Maravich six five. How would he do today? How would Jordan do today?
3: Yeah, you can't put your hand on him. Oh, I think they'd adapt, no question, and they'd be fine. So that's where you have to be fair. It's it's just more about, like, if you put the 15 Warriors against the 56 Celtics in, like, a simulation, it should be 112-4. to Like, it just should be, and that's with all deference to Bill Russell and, and the great Celtics that I've respected for years. It's just not comparable, I don't think.
4: No, and I try not to get into generational, but I think if you do look at the Bulls against the Warriors... That's interesting. The Bulls will be because the well I
3: think at the nineties you started to have athleticism. I don't know, I wouldn't say it's plateaued since the mid nineteen nineties, but those mid nineties Bulls teams and even the Pistons maybe to a certain degree, the athleticism's comparable. Yeah, but if
4: I did Showtime and I did the Celtics and I did the Bulls, like those three teams are better than Golden State. Golden State's not – there's no way they could handle the Celtics inside. Now, you can run them. Celtics back then ran. I got DJ Ainge at – Yeah, but Robert Parrish running
3: is different than Draymond Green running.
4: Yeah, but if I get you in any kind of half-court – Oh, half-court. I mean, you're dead. You're dead. The Lakers with Showtime? Come on. Far better team than the Golden State Warriors. Yeah. Far better. And then I put Mike, Scotty – I got Harper. So I got three guys on the perimeter, and those are long bodies on the perimeter. I got, if you want to put Rodman in there, or Horace Grant, I mean, Bulls are a better team. Yeah. They just are. The style now is, is fun to watch, but that doesn't mean, you know, if you win 73 games— If somebody had 73 wins, Michael would have gotten 74. Like, it would have mattered to him to get 74. We always look at the guy who gets the new record. Well, he has a record to go for. What was Mike's record? 68? Like, all right, we got it. Uh, Let's win a couple more games. All right, we got 72. So I like the debate. I think it's a dangerous debate, though. Sometimes when you do 30 years separation or something, if you look at the way the Celtics played, they would have been fun in today's games. If I, you know, I get Russell, who could run? Great track guy. I get, you know, the Joneses. I mean, I, we're running. We're yeah. moving. You know, that, that would be a fun little team in there. Yeah. Have Havelcheck in there. We're going.
3: Will Chamberlain this era?
4: Um, if he would develop, he would have to develop something because hmm. he couldn't shoot free throws, so they'd be, you know, doing a hack-a-shack on him. He never developed anything more than a power move. And I don't know if he'd get the opportunity to just be that powerful force. You know, he wouldn't be as big as Shaq, but he was, you know, seven foot 275, mm. which was huge back then. The competition he's going with, nobody could stop him one on one inside. So he's probably the greatest athlete who played the position, but I don't know. Like Kareem, to me, is Akeem Olajuwon and Kareem are two of my favorites. Because Kareem gave us the signature shot. Nobody's ever been able to approach that. Nobody's ever been able to recreate it. And he did it with such finesse. And I think Elijah Wan is the most underrated center in NBA history. Great footwork. Great footwork. You know, just touch, quickness, everything about it. I loved, loved watching Akeem Elijah Wan.
3: How was Kareem with you? Because Kareem's reputation with the media was not great later, for most of his career. Later. Well, later when he needed something. No,
4: later it was good with me. Oh. In the in the moment, no, not good yeah. at all. Kareem, I think, wants to know what you know. Like, are you worthy to be asking him questions? And it's not that overt, but I always felt like... Uh, we did a, an interview um, this past year, and the first thing I said is, did you ever play at West Forth and, you know, the cage in Manhattan? And said, you know, oh, I tried to
3: play there once. Oh, I didn't, didn't too. I, did, didn't I didn't get in.
4: <sighs> yeah, me neither. I, I was the only white guy there. They wouldn't let me in.
3: <laughs> I was the only white guy there, too. Well, they, I read a book on it and I went down there oh, and yeah, tried to get in. Yeah,
4: well, they did work. The guy who's losing is dribbling and going, I got next. And I go, wait, wait, I've been here. <laughs> my true story my, my wife went in to see the movie Sex Lies in Videotape. There's a theater right across the street. I said, I, I don't want to go, I'm going to, I'm going to play. She comes out two hours later, I haven't gotten in. All I've done is shoot, you know, like shoot in between games or like they're down at that end and I'd shoot. I couldn't get in the game. She goes, how was it? I go, I, I didn't get in the game. She goes, you didn't get in the game? Like two hours? You. I said, they'd always have next. And I, like I, I had to go down another time. I had to force myself in the game. And the only way you could do that is if they saw you do something where they thought you were okay, like you could help. So I, got to, I was able to play at the cage, but I I said to uh, Kareem, I said, you know, can you play at the cage? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he goes, but I, I always preferred playing up in Harlem. And then we just started talking about that. And then he realized that I knew UCLA basketball. So I would say, you know, Pete Turgovich or Larry Holyfield or, whoever it might be, that, Lucius Allen, like all of this, because I was a UCLA fan. And then he softened a little bit. And we were able to have a conversation that was, I mean, I, I mean friendly. Mm-hmm. But, but I think he, he wanted to know what I knew before he was going to open up a little bit. Because he was guarded, and I understand that. I mean, I, if, you walk, if you're 7'2", and you're walking around in life, you're just guarded like it's just it's a you're in a different world than all of us and for him to be in that world and i go back to what he did when he changed his name and i remember why would this guy change his name because i'm young at the time i'm like what what does that mean like what is this religion and you're you're fascinated with that and then somebody dies at his house and and then he's gone from milwaukee to la and It just was sort of, you couldn't process it because there were no, it's not like there were columns or articles or websites where they go, let me explain this to you. I'm going, who is this? And then, you know, Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay. So I'm 12 at the time. And Jim Brown, I grew up on. So they hold this press conference. You had, you know, the uh, Mexico Olympics. Carlos and Smith, I, I can't process this. And it's not something my family brought up at the dinner table, but I'm watching this going, why, why is everybody angry and changing their names? And, and then you realize later what they did, why they did it, when they did it, how they did it, and how courageous that was that they did it that way.
3: I just I have to ask the follow-up on the cage. Did you get in the game?
4: Yes, I did. How'd you do? Oh, I did for, hit my first two shots, and then they go, shooter. Like, that's <laughs> all you need. I got a shooter. Of course, I missed my, my, my next three, but I, I got the shooter. Wear that nickname proudly. But they go, white boy can shoot. And I went, yeah, that's quite a compliment there. White boy can shoot.
3: So did, did you ever interact with, and obviously Chamberlain's playing days are well before your time. Did you ever interact with him?
4: Yeah. The Royals beat them. So the Royals are moving. I think final score was 115-112. and so right out of the Cincinnati Gardens, the Laker bus was there. And we're outside because we're trying to get uh, autographs here. Bill Sharman was the coach, and Jerry West, and, you know, he had the whole crew there. And, and I just love the, the Laker colors. And Jerry West had these Adidas, these low-cut with gold-stripe Adidas. I just thought he was a badass. He's my dad's favorite player. Like and his penmanship was perfect. Like, Jerry West's penmanship was Jerry West. So there's Wilt, front seat of the bus, not signing anything. And I think I'm 16 at the time, 15 or 16 at the time. And I went, I'm I'm never going to see Wilt Chamberlain again. So I walk on the bus. Wilt stood up, looked down at me, said, get the fuck off the bus. So I turned back around, came back down to my friend, Zeke Campbell, he and Bill Richardson go. Wait, wait, what? Did he, what do you say? I said, he he said, get the fuck off the bus. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. But all I wanted to do was get an autograph. I walked on the team bus. Nothing. Wouldn't even. No, no, no. Because they lost. Yeah. Fast forward to 1983, maybe there was a volleyball type. Setting at the garden, and and Wilt was there, and it was talking about beach volleyball, and got a chance to sit down and interview him. And I said, I don't know if you remember this, but you guys lost to the Cincinnati Royals, and I got on the bus, and I asked you for an autograph, and he said, and I stood up and told you to get the fuck off the bus. I said, yep, that was me, that was me, <laughs> yep, that was me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he said, Do you want my autograph? Now I go, No, <laughs> no, nah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. I did at the time. I really wanted your autograph.
3: <laughs> All right. So I've got a couple of uh Dan Patrick related questions for you that this is when the, the what I wanted to know since I've known you. Okay. Throughout the nineties, successful Sports Center Anchor, you and Keith created the Sports Center Anchor model there. But you get into radio in the late nineties. What was it that made you want to venture into that? An area that you've become incredibly successful at since then
4: I think the TV is always confining like I'm, I'm not a big TV guy i don't I understand it, appreciate it, but it's not something I love doing because it's confining whereas radio is you decide what you want to talk about, and if you're passionate about it and or your audience buys into you, then you know no worries whereas TV I could be I'd have snippets of 15 seconds here or 20 here or, you know, whatever it might be. Even a uh, Sunday conversation might be five minutes. Whereas radio could be, here's the topic today. Or we're going to stumble on this today. And I love that sort of open forum where you create what you want to create. And I think I was drawn to that, that you grow up wanting to talk sports instead of... Let me just give you a blast here and then stop, and a blast here. I was able to go. I got three hours. I can have who I want to come on. if I want to spend fifteen minutes with somebody, five minutes with somebody, thirty minutes with somebody, you can do that and uh, so I, th- I think it was that was the draw
3: I mean, how anxious were you when you left espN to to do this almost independently? I know you 've talked on the show and i 've seen the YouTube video of you at your house doing the show from, what was that, your attic? Attic, yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with your guys coming with you. I mean, what were those, were those anxious years, or did you have the confidence that all this was going to kind of come along?
4: I didn't know what was going to come along, but I knew I was doing what I wanted to do with the right people. I just didn't know if it... We had 12 radio stations when we started. Like, I was going door to door begging people to take the show. And... I'd been on 300 stations at ESPN, so you come out and you get sand kicked in your face. But it was it was a great reset for me to almost say, "Hey, now you got to start to prove yourself again." And we did the show from my attic, and I just remember I never had more fun because we were all in it together. I got Paulie and Fritzy and Seton to leave ESPN to join me. And McLovin then eventually came up blogging about the show, and I realized that he had, you know, there was something about him that I thought was funny, and he was very smart. And I was finally home. I didn't care. And that's the reason why I left ESPN. And and contrary to what anybody says is all I wanted to do was do radio at home on Fridays. Like, that's all I asked. I, mean, I was going to do second shit, you know, like whatever they wanted me to do at the mothership. I said, can I do radio on Friday at home? You'll never be able to tell the difference. And they go, no, it's precedent setting. Everything was precedent setting. And I, you know, four kids, nine through 15. And my wife said, they're all going to be gone. And I have three daughters. And I, I just said, I, what am I doing? It was all selfish. It was for me. And I went, all right, I'm going to come home and I'm going to do this. And I had to convince those guys that we would be successful And I'm forever indebted to them because, you know, work ethic, attitude, everything. But thank God I did it because I was around my my kids before they went to college. And um, I'd still be at the mothership. I mean, I was loyal, like too loyal because I I missed anniversaries and birthdays and like all of that because I was driven to, you know, I got to be great at ESPN. And then I realized that you know we're all interchangeable parts but i was naive in a way that i've always bought you know into let's make the team great and then i realized that i didn't even know the team i was playing for and it was a great wake up call there but look i i badmouthed them only there's a couple people that are bad people there really bad people but 98% of them are awesome totally invested driven care Wonderful people, so thankfully, I had a a boss who made it a little easier to leave because you know he gave you a take it or leave it, and he was really important, and we can move on without you because if not, I wouldn't have left. Mm. I would have stayed so for him being an asshole. I have a better life and a better family.
3: I mentioned at the top of the podcast just how much you're doing right now, and it just seems like instead of slowing down, you add layers to it, the, the sports jeopardy thing being the most recent yeah. thing to it. And you've talked to me about how you know once you get back from the Olympics, it's rise and grind six days a week, football night in America comes along. I yeah. mean, I mean how, how long can you keep this pace up? Do you want to keep this pace up?
4: As long as it's fun. It's, it's, I, I tell this to the Danettes all the time. I said, if we're having fun, I'll continue this.
3: I've heard Perloff ask many times how long you've been. Yes, they're, <laughs> they're all nervous about it.
4: Um, if it's fun. Like, Sports Jeopardy was this great challenge. And I got humbled in the beginning because it, it's tougher than you think. And to be able to be out there on the same stage with Alex Trebek, with the same people that he works with, the same people come up with the clues. You know, you go into a a different world there. And I think part of it is that you just sort of wanted to have, you wanted to be humbled a little bit, just so it it kind of forced you to not take things for granted. So that was something that was new to me and it made, it it was a a challenge. Uh, The show itself, I enjoy being around those guys. We have fun, we laugh, you know, it's three hours. Let's talk about what we want to talk about. We have 275 affiliates direct TV came in and put in the cameras that I enjoy an awful lot football night in America is a great challenge as well with you know Rodney and Tony and the product and it's the number one show in TV and so you you put all those things together I get to pick what I want to do instead of somebody picking what I want to do or I need to do and that's the difference so that that was what I wanted to do that was my goal initially is let me do what I want to do what I can do so I'd like to do it for a few more years, but I don't know. After that, may just disappear. Do like farming or something? <laughs> Who knows? Raising chickens or something like that? Who knows?
3: The last question I have for you, you and Sandler, how did that friendship come about? Because I'll, I'll admit something, and certain people that we both know know this. My one of my guilty pleasures. Grown-up movies. The two grown-up movies. Yes. I I don't know why, but I watch them all the time. I watched them in my hotel this morning when I got up. I just have a... They just amuse me for some reason. You're in both of them. You've been in... I mean, how many Sandler movies now have you been in?
4: It's sad that I don't know how many. It's a lot. I think it's 11 or 12. Yeah. And then I was in a movie with Anna Faris, The House Bunny, that was Sandler produced. But Where did that friendship start? I was at a Knicks game. And I went out where there's, um, it's kind of in the bowels of the garden. And I look over and Sandler's sitting by himself. And they had just done Happy Gilmore. So I don't know what year that is. But I walk out and I said, uh, hey, Adam. And and he uh, said, Danny P. He goes, your boy fucked me. I go, wait, what? He goes, yeah, Oberman. He was supposed to. Be in uh, Happy Gilmore, and he bailed on me uh, three days. He couldn't fly to Vancouver. I don't know. Any, I don't even know anything about this. And I go, "If you ever need somebody, you let me know." And he goes, "You're in my next movie. You're a police officer with a mustache. You're Danny McFucking Patrick." And I go, "All right." So I, I leave. I'm like, "All right, that was a pretty cool story." Next thing I know, he does the Water Boy, and they. His guys came in and said, You know, he wants you to be on camera playing yourself. I said, All right. So I played myself in the water, boy. Then after that, he had me play a police officer. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, longest yard, where he wanted me to wear a mustache. <laughs> and it just, he actually sent me videos while we're here in Rio of his daughters watching me, and I was their dad in a movie. Uh, Recently, so he's a loyal friend. The
3: movies that you've been in, it seems like your role almost gets bigger every so often. It's always a cameo, but there's always. Well, he
4: knows I only have a day or two to do it. Yeah. So every one of them, Ridiculous Six, I played Abe Lincoln, where, you know, he said, you know, Danny, you're going to be Abe Lincoln. And I go, all right. I mean, like at this point, I I was like, okay. They put the makeup on, and it was kind of scary that. I don't know if it's good to say you look like Lincoln, but I look <laughs> like Lincoln. Better Lincoln, you or Daniel Day-Lewis? Looking. Me. Performing. <laughs> him. By, by an edge. But, you know, he has fun with it. And uh, Rob Schneider said, once you're in, you're in with Sandler. Yeah. And that's really what it is, that he, he just gathers the people that he likes and we have fun. And In fact, being here, I can't be in the next movie oh. that he's shooting now in L.A., so he, I, I've been corresponding with him, but I said I, I can't do it just time-wise. I can't, I'm not able to do it because he wanted me to be a referee of mud wrestling in the <laughs> next movie. So I, I said as much as I would love to do that, Sandman, I, I'm i not able to do it. But he's been a friend, and I, I appreciate that. So, you know, lucky, very lucky. Well,
3: Dan, I appreciate it. You know, I've been part of your show for many years now doing some stuff periodically but i appreciate you taking a few minutes to come on this and uh doing the podcast
4: here wait we've been doing a podcast yes it's it's not
3: live we're just talking it's oh yeah we could just be talking you know the microphone and everything
4: my pleasure always great to talk basketball with you chris
3: that's it. My thanks to Dan Patrick for joining the show. As always, you can download this podcast and other archive podcasts anywhere you can download podcasts. You can now hear the Vertical Podcast Network every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio on Sirius Channel 214 and XM Channel 203. And, of course, on the Sirius XM app, Channel 967. Catch the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick every Monday my podcast every Tuesday and the Vertical Podcast with Woj every Wednesday on SiriusXM or, as always, On Demand here on the podcast. We'll see you next week. This
0: has been a digital media production. Find your voice.
2: Zumo Play.